0: PFK in Los Angeles. This is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, Harold Meyerson will have our political update. Today, Gavin Newsom proposed giving money to almost all Californians to speed economic recovery from the pandemic. And our critic Ella Taylor will talk about the Underground Railroad. It's premiering Friday on Prime Video, 10 one hour episodes of historical drama about American slavery and escaping from slavery. People are saying it's the most ambitious take on American slavery since Roots. And that was more than 40 years ago. But first, Rachel Kushner. Her new book, The Hard Crowd, includes an unforgettable essay about her visit to a Palestinian refugee camp. Her novels, The Mars Room, The Flamethrowers, and Telex from Cuba have been translated into 26 languages and won many awards. We've talked about them here. The essays in The Hard Crowd are about politics, art, literature, music, and motorcycles. And they appeared originally in the New York Times Magazine, the LRB, the Paris Review, Art Forum, and the New Yorker. We reached her today at home in LA. Rachel, welcome back.
1: Thanks, John. Nice to be here.
0: Well, the Palestinian refugee camp you wrote about in The Hard Crowd is not in Gaza or southern Lebanon. It's actually inside Jerusalem. I knew nothing about this. It's called Shuafat. Of course, your essay is not about the current crisis in Jerusalem and the efforts of right-wing Jews there to push Palestinians out of some of the Palestinian neighborhoods around Shuafat. You visited in 2016 when something called the Knife Intifada was going on. But your report is about ordinary life for Palestinian refugees at that time and in that place. What's going on now in Israel and Palestine is so much worse. We're speaking on Wednesday. When you were in Shuafat, Israeli planes were not bombing Gaza and killing children. Israeli forces had not attacked the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem at the end of Ramadan and injured hundreds of Palestinians. I almost said that when you were in Shuafat in 2016, things were more peaceful. But that's not really the right way to describe it.
1: Yeah, I I could see how one would use that expression compared to now, that it was relatively peaceful. But going there, as I did, and witnessing what, to me, very much looked like apartheid, and in fact, representatives from South Africa who had been a part of the truth and reconciliation process had gone to the West bank and said that apartheid wasn't quite the right term because what they witnessed there was so much more extreme in terms of there being two different systems for two different populations of people. In any case, going there and witnessing what looked like apartheid and seeing the constant violence and humiliation that was enacted by Israel to maintain that apartheid is never peaceful. The year that I was there was the Intifada of the knife when young people with nothing to lose charged at Israeli soldiers with knives in their hands. Just these totally futile acts of despair. And my feeling by the time I left Israel and Palestine was, I was stunned to think that the Palestinian people were not running at Israeli soldiers in despair every second of their waking lives. And it was the opposite of what you'd think. You think you would ask yourself, how could these kids decide to end it all? You know, it's a version of suicide by cop running at a soldier with a knife in your hand, a soldier that's armed to the teeth, moreover wearing, you know, knife proof, bullet proof, all kinds of personal body armor. My question was the opposite How are they not doing that all the time because of the extreme nature of their predicament and the torture and humiliation of it? So that was my personal takeaway, and I think that part of Israel's trick is to leave us with a lack of language, where peace is not the right term for a momentary absence of terror, such as the time when I went, when, as you say, um, Israel was not actively bombing buildings that were full of children in Gaza.
0: Your visit to Shuafat was a big deal for the people who live there. It seems like they were all happy to see you and happy to talk to you. Partly that was because you obviously cared about them and were interested in them, but also it was because of your guide, a wonderful man named Baha Nababta, 29-year-old community organizer. In some ways, it's a story about him. How did you and Baha find each other?
1: I was invited to go to the West Bank in 2016 by the writer's, Michael Chabon and Ayelet Waldman, who were putting together an anthology to mark the 50th anniversary of the occupation of 1967. And the book is called Kingdom of Olive and Ash. And they had liaised with an incredible array of different kinds of contacts on the ground in the West Bank from community organizers of youth groups in cities like Hebron and Ramallah to architects who are experts on the tripartite division that Israel uses um, to code areas and how they are controlled and the level to which they are controlled to philosophers and historians, poets. We traveled all over the West Bank for a week and um, met with people multiple times a day. I mean, we would be roused, for instance, at four in the morning to go to a checkpoint at Calandia and talk to the woman there who's been monitoring that checkpoint for the last 40 years Mm -hmm. uh, and talking to her about the difference between merely being a witness to humanitarian crimes and doing something more. And she is more on the side now of doing something more. At the end of that long and intensive and concentrated week, we each were given a weekend where we had chosen a specific subtopic that we wanted to write about for the anthology. And then they, long before the trip, had organized, arranged everything, and connected us to the context that we would need for our weekend away from the group doing whatever we'd chosen to do. And just on instinct alone before I went, I was not knowledgeable about the history of Palestine. I was dimly aware of the way most people would be and dimly aware also of like where my affinities and sympathies might lie. But I really knew very little about the history of that conflict. And on instinct, I decided I wanted to see what life was like inside one of these refugee camps that's been functioning where people thus are forced to make alive generation after generation for decades now. And what does that mean? These are not temporary camps at this point. Um, And obviously the really famous or more notorious camps are inside Lebanon. And I knew people who had written, you know, academic books about these camps and et cetera. But I saw on the map that there was a camp inside uh, the borders of Israel and it's called Shuafat. There's also a neighborhood called Shuafat and that should not be confused for the camp because they are very different. That's basically a middle-class neighborhood. Um, Shuafat refugee camp has 85,000 residents who live in um roughly 1 square kilometer and i knew that and just asked myself how do those people live and what kind of self government goes is you know goes on in that camp because the palestinian authority is not allowed into the camp it is israeli territory but Israel does not service the camp. There's no water service. There's no electricity. There's no emergency services. There are no, virtually no schools. There's no land registration. There's no paved roads. There's no garbage mm. service. So how do these people live? And the organizers who worked with Michael Shabon and Ayelet Waldman. One of them, Moriel Rothman Zecker, who's a writer and an organizer who'd been uh, living and working in the West Bank for many years, knew of Baha Nababta and connected me to him. And we went into the camp together and met with Baha. And Moriel served as my Arabic interpreter for quite a while. The first day I was there. Uh, And then he left and it was me and Baja alone. And I stayed with his family for a weekend and talked to him quite a bit about the camp, about his family, his history. He was born in the camp. Believe his father may have also been born in the camp. His children were all born in the camp and what kind of future they saw for themselves and also why people live in that camp.
0: Have you been in touch with or heard anything about what's been going on in the last week or month there?
1: Really, just through the news. I've I, I've been busy and preoccupied with uh, some family issues, so I haven't had the time I'd like to, you know, read everything that's happened. And I I like to follow um, Breaking the Silence, former Israeli military people who have stepped up to you know speak about their experiences in the military and they i'm on their newsletter you know email list and read what they have to say about it they haven't sent out a report yet um, i will say that reading about the destruction in gaza and the killing of children living in housing blocks in gaza does remind me of my trip in 2016 because one of the people on our trip the writer Dave Eggers uh, went to Gaza. I went to Shuafat, Dave went to Gaza. And in order to go into Gaza, he had, he had to get several different um, documents stamped by both the Israeli government and Hamas. And the people living in Gaza, like, you know, we've all heard over the years are trapped there and cannot leave. And in a way, there is a similar predicament in Shuafat. In fact, I met people from Gaza in Shuafat who had, you know, originally in Gaza were trapped there. And then once they got to Shuafat, were trapped in Shuafat because Gazans are not allowed to really be anywhere. But inside of Shuafat, since Israel doesn't service that camp, they don't bother with people who are there without papers, without documentation. And if you're there and you don't have you know, a green documentation that allows you to travel in um, the West Bank, and you don't have documentation that allows you to travel in Israel, you're basically stuck inside this one kilometer camp. And the Israeli military has invaded that camp in the past. And having been there, I think I could understand just in a tiny way, which is better than nothing at all, understand what it's like to be stuck in a territory that's being bombarded by the Israeli military.
0: So when you were there, you moved around with Baha as people talked to him about what they needed, what they wanted him to help with. What sorts of things did they turn to him for?
1: My impression of him was that he sort of was like a de facto mayor of the place, although the term mayor is a little problematic because that suggests politics. And I think that Baja transcended politics, maybe in the way that the most effective politicians do. He seemed like a trusted source that people could go to for a whole variety of problems. The first thing I saw him deal with was a lack of water in one of the unregistered, um, not up to code high rise buildings that people are forced to live in there. This building had no water um, and had had no water for a few days. They sort of take water illegally from lines that pass near Shuafat and they are forced to do that. Um, And they were having a problem and Baha's phone kept ringing and he wasn't answering. And finally he said to me, it's the people calling from this building here and pointed to this towering high-rise building. And he said, I can't answer yet because I really don't have a solution for them to offer. But he was trying to work with the facilities people who are kind of renegade facilities people who can figure out how to solve the problem of getting water to this building. Um, I remember another problem was a man whose baby uh, had died in a clinic. And the man wanted to kill the doctor who uh, had attended to the situation with this baby. And it was one of those situations that without knowing much about it, I would say is a symptom of a lack of a useful, helpful civil structure where people resort to revenge out of grief. And not just that, but a symptom of the lack of decent medical care that people can turn to. And so Baja was forced to deal with a lot of very complex situations that arise in a place that doesn't have a civil structure.
0: What did Baja mean when he told you, we need police here? Well, to be quite honest,
1: and part of what I write about in that essay is what I heard in terms of what fit with a narrative that I was sort of constructing in my mind as I was with him and what I wrote down, but didn't really think about in the moment. I mean, I was taking in a lot of information in just a few days time and really just trying to be in that place. For me, it wasn't really a political engagement. It was me trying to write down sense impressions and be sensitive to what people were telling me. And the piece that I wrote was meant to, I guess I wanted people who read it to feel that they would have had the same reactions that I did, that it was just about a person being plunged into, immersed in an environment that was foreign to her. And yet the people in it, still had so much dignity and humanity and decency. And I reacted to that. The detail about Baja telling me that they wanted police there was something that I wrote down in my notebook, but quickly kind of, I guess I would say I repressed it because it didn't really fit with my ideas for the place. And yes, you know, I'm I'm no real fan of the function of police in society who are sort of you know, to clunkily summarize, they are to protect private property and those who own property. But Baha, coming from a place that is caught between two different authorities, not attended to by the government of Israel, not attended to by the Palestinian Authority, has been overrun by opportunists who themselves are a product of a place that has experienced war and a deeply ignobling treatment by the Israeli military for decades now. And so naturally, there are young people there who are more brutal in their perception of how to get ahead. And they, there are people in the camp who regard the lawlessness as useful for their own endeavors, be it like selling drugs or making money in other ways. And you know, some you can buy an apartment in Shuafat refugee camp for a lot less money than you would, for instance, be able to buy an apartment for in Israel proper, so to speak, proper. But there are people who could take that apartment away from you at gunpoint at any moment, and there's nothing you can do. So that's part of what Baha, I think, was speaking to is a lawlessness and opportunism that he was trying you know, to push back against. And I believe that that's what ended up getting him assassinated in the street in the middle of the day in front of 100 people.
0: Yeah, I have to say, when I read that part at the end, I shouted unintentionally, no. And my wife came into the room and said, "What? what happened? What's wrong? And I said, uh, I was sort of embarrassed. And I said, oh, I'm just reading Rachel Kushner's book. But it is something horrible and something huge that ends this essay.
1: Yeah, it was devastating to learn that. And um, the people who had organized my trip into the camp let me know I was getting on an airplane. It was 10 days after I left. I was traveling to do something, to go talk to students at Hunter College. And um, they called me and said, you know, we're very sorry. We we need to tell you that Baja was killed. And um, it was unbelievable to me. I had not felt that I was inviting that kind of violence into my life by going there, but in fact, in a way, I was. And um, your reaction of "Oh no," I think, was shared by people who knew Baha very well. There were activists, you know, is even Israeli activists who'd worked with Baha who don't recognize their own government. Architects I knew who'd worked with him, who kind of work on these issues of trying to reestablish services to Shuafat, who said it's always the good ones. It's always mm. the good ones. Mm. People who, you know, are or not divisive, who are optimists and positive without being unrealistic, who have a natural grace. And Baha had a natural grace. And I think it was really devastating and demoralizing to people uh, that that he that he died in, in, in this
0: way. When you leave the camp, you do write everything. I quote: "Everything seems hopeless and obscene," and that's even before Baha got killed.
1: Well, yeah, that was after I met the child of a friend of Baja who's a co-organizer with him of a volunteer, voluntary emergency response system where, without fire, medical, or ambulance services, they tr- they have a WhatsApp group where they try to be on call for emergencies. And the goal is to get people through the Israeli checkpoint on the border of the camp back into Jerusalem so they can go to a hospital. And many people have died being carried Mm -hmm. on stretchers through that checkpoint. This incident had happened beyond Shuafat, where a school bus full of children had crashed on a wet road and turned over and caught fire. And it was totally Devastating uh, incident for the people of Shuafat camp, and um, I mean, it's honestly it's hard to talk about. But this young woman that I met, she young girl, she I believe was eight years old, had been very badly burned and injured in that fire. And her father, Adele, you know, wheeled her out in her wheelchair to meet me, and she was very sweet and patient, didn't understand English, and was asked to sit there and kind of pretend that she understood and was paying attention. And um, it was an unbearable situation, but it was also life for these people. And they were asking me to bear witness to their life and to this girl. And I did that, um, but also tried to explain what was difficult about it in the essay that I wrote that's in the book.
0: Well, I'm sorry that we're running out of time. There's a lot more in this book that I'd love to talk about. You have a wonderful profile of Ruth Gilmore, our leading prison abolitionist. A lot of wonderful stuff about motorcycles. I guess I should just ask you to explain what does the title mean, The Hard Crowd?
1: Yeah, it's true. You didn't ask me about any of the fun stuff, John. <laughs>
0: right.
1: It's right to the misery. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> which you know i don't think that that essay is actually miserable but the hard crowd is well it's the title of the book but it's also the title of the final essay in the book which is a kind of i guess remembrance of youth memory adolescence and those parts of adulthood that one will never revisit again because they are gone forever The hard crowd is a line I stole from a cream song called White Room that I've always loved and remember having heard in a head shop when I was probably 10 or 11 years old, growing up in San Francisco in the Haight-Ashbury. And to me, it's an evocative and strange grouping of words. It's not the tough crowd, you know, like um, a suspicious or unrespective audience or the tough crowd like Marlon Brando in Hollister, California, looking for something to rebel against, (laughs) it's something else. And it could mean different things in different parts of the book. But in that final essay, I guess, it's those who committed themselves totally and ardently to the present tense in a way that a writer, I think, cannot because the noticer removes herself by virtue of her noticing.
0: And you say that in the hard crowd, you were the soft one, which is, I guess, why you're here today and some of them are not.
1: I don't know if I would have seemed all that soft if you'd met me then, (laughs) but it's a way to sort of make a proposition about difference. And also I have often felt that people who have star quality are kind of up there for me among my friends. And I like to write about people as though they are stars. So in that way, I kind of position myself as the one who doesn't have those same qualities to which I'm paying
0: homage. One last thing before we close, I have to ask Rachel Kushner, are you related to Jared Kushner?
1: You've asked me that before, John.
0: Every time, I always have to check in and make sure.
1: My husband trollingly refers to him as Cousin Jared, (laughs) um, which makes us all laugh. As far as I know, there is no actual relation.
0: Rachel Kushner, her wonderful new book is The Hard Crowd. Rachel, thanks for all your work and thanks for talking with us today.
1: Thanks so much, John. Always a pleasure
0: it's the same old story this is living in the usa and i'm john wiener talking about politics thinking about the left Now it's time for today's political update. And so we turn, of course, to Harold Meyerson. He's editor-at-large of The American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. We reached him today, as usual, at home in our nation's capital. Hi, Harold.
2: Hi, John. Here I am, as usual, in the nation's capital.
0: Well, the big news in California today is that Governor Gavin Newsom is proposing an economic stimulus plan of $100 billion to speed up California's recovery from the pandemic. And that starts with sending checks for $600 to two-thirds of the state's residents, plus an additional $500 to families with children. He also proposes spending five. Billion dollars for rental assistance. He says that will pay 100 percent of back rent for those who have fallen behind, plus another two billion to pay down utility bills. This seems like a lot of money to me.
2: Well, it is a lot of money, but the uh, whence it comes is that the state is running a astounding uh, budget surplus. Of seventy-seven billion dollars,
0: <laughs> oh,
2: uh, which, which is is mind-boggling. You know, California often ref, California boosters often refer to the state as well. We've got the fifth-largest economy in the world. Uh, now suddenly, we've got the kind of leak. California has the kind of budget uh, that many other uh, nations, ne- never mind just states, nations would envy. Uh, and this is largely the result of something that California has been raked over the coals uh, by right-wingers for for the longest time. That is to say it has really progressive taxes.
0: I have to ask if things are going so great with the California economy, why do we need an economic stimulus plan at all?
2: Well, because they're not going so great with the California economy. The California economy is the extreme example of what's been called in recent months, looking at the economic data, a K-shaped recovery in which the rich get richer. Uh, and over the last year, uh, many uh, working class people have been out of work, have had to scrounge, uh, have fallen behind on their rent, have fallen behind on their utility bills. Hence uh, the, specific, uh, the specific offers uh, of help that Gavin Newsom is proposing in his budget Um, You know, uh, this is a a tale of two states. Uh, You have the uh, very affluent on the coasts and you have uh, a great number of regular California working people who are living in a state with the uh, uh, highest housing costs of any state and really struggling uh, to make ends meet even if they have been fully employed over the last year. So, uh, this budget really is in many ways, it's, it's, it's sort of the most serious redistribution I can think of uh, in many ways, even including the federal government and, and includes other things too. Newsom is going to propose uh, a, a, year, a full year of pre-kindergarten for every four-year-old in the state. Uh, he, he's proposed 12 billion uh, for homeless and more affordable housing. Uh, the list goes on and on because if you add that seventy-seven billion dollars to the additional, I think it's twenty-three billion or thereabouts, which is coming from uh, the, uh, uh, the the Biden stimulus, uh, there you have a hundred billion dollars to play around with. You know uh, that's kind of unheard of, and and uh, Newsom is is doing the right thing, but there are lessons here, very big lessons for how to go about uh, redistribution and how to, how to really deal in a responsible way with an economy uh, which has seen stratospheric wealth just become more stratospheric in general over the last 10, 20 years, and in particular over the last year. Uh, and I think California has in some ways stumbled into uh, the sweet spot for, for dealing with that, the
0: sweet spot of redistribution, we might call it the sweet spot of redistribution, great phrase. Uh, Let's talk about this 12 billion to house homeless people in California that Newsom proposes to spend. That would be the biggest single investment any state has ever made to address homelessness. And as you said, it it will go to creating affordable housing to also increasing mental health services and funding other programs. But let us remember that LA County voted overwhelmingly back in 2017 for Measure H. This passed with something like two thirds of the vote, which is a sales tax increase that was that will raise $3.5 billion for combating homelessness. And at the same time, the city of LA voted for Measure HHH to spend $1.2 billion on 10,000 units of housing for the homeless. So. Uh, and yet, of the 10,000 units that are the money has been appropriated for, almost none of them have been built. So it seems like 12 billion plus 3.5 billion plus 1.2 billion, we should have housing for everybody who's homeless in California and especially in Los Angeles, but there's still, I think the last count was something like 60,000 people homeless on the streets of LA. What's going to happen here?
2: Well, that's a good question. Uh, any effort to actually house homeless people in L.A. has run up against a wall of opposition from people who live anywhere where such housing has been proposed, and that's been sufficient to uh, intimidate city council members and others uh, for pushing too far. So it's kind of a disgrace. I mean, um, you, w- you would... you uh, would. Uh, It may be that if it's handled at the level of state government rather than local government, uh, the more geographically parochial concerns of of NIMBYites uh, and people just concerned about, you know, having homeless in their neighborhood uh, would be in some ways harder to register at that level of government. Uh, That may be the only way to do it. I mean, you know, it may turn out that it has to go to the national level. It may turn out have to go to the United (laughs) Nations. Uh, The United
0: Nations, in fact, does have protocols for uh, homeless encampments. uh, Yes, they they do
2: indeed. Uh, But, uh, you know, clearly at the level of local government, local government officials were just too fearful of pushback. Uh, and we'll see the fate of this with, uh, with the Gavin Newsom's $12 billion proposal at the state level.
0: And, of course, all of this is happening against the background of a recall effort by Republicans. Uh, how's the recall going? Not so
2: hot. Not so hot. There's some polling out relatively recently that shows it has support in the high 30s, which uh, is nowhere near enough. It's clearly sort of a core Republican issue in a state in which core Republicans constitute uh, on the whole, maybe a quarter of the population and in a low turnout election, maybe a third of the population. It's not clear that it's really reaching anywhere, you know, beyond that. And what Newsom is doing, which is sort of, you know, the the new New Deal comes to California, certainly uh, will uh, help cement Uh, his support going into the recall. But, you know, actually, the key thing here predates Newsom, and it is California taxes, which I think
0: we need to talk about. Please tell us about California taxes. Well, Elon Elon Musk moved to Austin because the taxes are so high in California.
2: Yeah, well, you know, I mean, uh, one possible response to that is good riddance. Uh, But in any (laughs) event, uh, California taxes... For the highest income bracket, uh, exceed thir- 13%, and that's on top of federal taxes, uh, and that includes capital gains. And in a year, and in a period, really, in which investment income has been soaring, and over the past, <coughs> over the past year in particular, investment income has largely, uh, in stocks and such, been skyrocketing while uh, many people's actual wage income has declined, uh, you you have a situation in which the fact that California has the most progressive taxes on the wealthy uh, just produced so much money from Silicon Valley and elsewhere that the state has this astonishing surplus. So you kind of wonder, you know, why doesn't... uh, Now, obviously, the, the fact that so many billionaires and people like them are concentrated in California, is a major reason for this. But you know, a lot of billionaires are concentrated in New York, northern New Jersey, and uh, southwestern Connecticut. Uh, they're called Wall Street. And uh, Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, has uh, opposed and you know threatened to veto any effort to raise taxes uh, on Wall Street to comparable levels that Californians tax Silicon Valley. Uh, And so, uh, New York doesn't have this kind of money to throw around, and New York could really use it.
0: Meanwhile, back in Washington. Oh, yes. We're speaking here uh, late on Wednesday. House Republicans have voted to kick Liz Cheney out of her leadership post because she continues to challenge Trump's big lie about the election being stolen. And soon after that uh, vote, several uh, Republican members of the House spoke up uh, to minimize the actions of the pro-Trump rioters who stormed the Capitol on January 6th. My favorite was Representative Andrew S. Clyde of Georgia, somebody I'm not that familiar with, said, quote, There was an undisciplined mob. There were some rioters and some who committed acts of vandalism. But let me be clear, there was no insurrection. To call it an insurrection is a bold-faced lie. If you watch TV footage of those who entered the Capitol and walked through Statuary Hall, you saw people in an orderly fashion staying between the stanchions and ropes, taking videos and pictures of each other. Close quote. So um, what do you make of the vote to kick Liz Cheney out combined with just moments later, Republic- some Republicans making statements like this? What do they tell us about the Republican Party?
2: Well, you know, Republicans have in, in sort of in their QAnon, however you pronounce that.
0: That's good enough. Uh,
2: mode, uh, have have said, you know, the Democrats are... are uh, Practicing practicing satanic rituals, and uh, there, there, there was a story recently, I think, in the Washington Post, quoting Joe Biden on the campaign trail last year, uh, and saying, you know, if, if and when the Republicans lost, they would have their their come to Jesus moment, their altar time, and I think that gets the wrong Catholic ritual <laughs> uh, uh, as a description of what the Republicans. Really need to do. They need an exorcism. Mm -hmm. They have been uh, possessed by Donald Trump uh, almost to the exclusion of any ideology. I mean, you know, Liz Cheney was about as right as you could go on the political spectrum on normal political issues. Not not on overthrowing the government. On that, she (laughs) to be of sound mind. Uh, But you know, it's it's this satanic. uh, uh, possession, uh, and yeah, I, I think it explains Donald Trump's comb over, which is obviously d- devised to hide <laughs> the horns. So uh, I mean that that's what's that's what's going on uh, in in the Republican Party, which you know is is clearly just unmoored uh, from reality. Some have chosen to be unmoored because it's politically expedient, given the uh, nuttiness of their base and of the uh, uh, the right-wing echo chamber on media, which which just uh, inflames uh, that that sentiment, um, and you know there are some yokels who uh, in, in elected office who actually believe this crap, including possibly uh, that guy from Georgia whom you quoted, Congressman Clyde. Uh, so that's what's there. But what's also notable about uh, the vote today was that it was a voice vote, uh, and the leadership understood that. Once the vote was recorded, uh, Republicans would be vulnerable either way. Um, The remaining people with a tether still to reality in the party uh, would be up in arms about those who voted to bounce her. And those who uh, wanted to keep her in would uh, uh, excite the uh, rage and ire of uh, Republicans who who wanted her out of there, which is the majority of uh, of the party. So how to avoid that that kind of putting everybody in either a little or a lot of political danger come the next Republican primary? Well, don't have a recorded vote. Just do it uh, just do it by voice. So it it, it sort of uh, uh, profiles in in cowardice uh, in in a bigger way than is than is actually
0: common. There is a big however to all of this though, and that is despite all of Trump's statements that the election was stolen and all of this Republican speechifying today about this, Republican leader Kevin McCarthy today told reporters, no one is questioning Biden's legitimacy. Quote, I think that is all over with, close quote. He said, we're sitting here with the president today, close quote and indeed right after they dumped Cheney Kevin McCarthy and the rest of the House Republican leadership then met with Joe Biden to discuss a bipartisan approach to infrastructure so what is going on here
2: well you know i mean we talk about two halves of the brain the left half and the right <laughs> half in the case of the republicans now it's the malignant fantasy half and the sometimes we have to you know, work in the world of reality half. <laughs> and when when Kevin McCarthy moved, uh, you know, took took the uh, seven minute car ride from uh, from the house side of uh, of the Capitol to the White House, he made that move. Uh, and you know, I mean, it literally uh, the the man uh, speaks in in two different modes depending on the immediate context, uh, who are the what the, his surroundings may be, who he's talking to. Uh, maybe the color scheme, whatever. But I mean, (laughs) it's it's a divided mentality. I mean, uh, future psychologists will no doubt write about this with a certain amazement.
0: You know, I I remember that several months ago, uh, Nancy Pelosi said, quote, one of my prayers is that the Republicans will take back their party. We need a Republican party that is not a hijacked cult, close quote, and some of our friends say, well, why would you want that? As long as the Republicans are raving lunatics, you know, they're going to be divided and the sane ones won't want to be part of them and they're, they'll be reduced to their base, um, makes them more ineffective, unpopular. So more power to them and more power to Lynn Cheney for continuing to keep these fires burning.
2: Well, I mean, you know, we'll see. I mean, the, the uh, downside of that argument is you could have more and more dangerous January 6th, uh, more insurrections, if I may use a phrase which our Georgia friend does not like. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I mean, uh, it. I, I can understand the uh, feeling of someone like Pelosi to have people on the other side of the aisle who actually share a common view of what is real and what is not. Uh, admittedly, you know, there has always been the kind of ideological difference in which there isn't never been complete agreement on what is real and what is not. But it, it, it is past the point of, uh, you know, uh, any, any possible communication between the two at this juncture.
0: So, in, in, concluding, in, in concluding, I just want to remind us Trump never got a majority of the voters, never came close. His approval rating as president never went above 50%. That made him the most unpopular president in modern history. Right now, 63% of voters approve of the job Joe Biden is doing as president. Is America a great country or what? Uh, both. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a great country
2: and what? Uh, that That's that's the genius of American exceptionalism.
0: Harold Meyerson, read at prospect.org. Carol, always great to have you on the show.
2: Always good to be here, John.
0: It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, Thinking About the Left. Now it's time to talk about TV and movies with Ella Taylor. Of course, she's a longtime critic for the LA Weekly, NPR.org, and many other places. We reach her today, as usual, at home in Santa Monica. Hi, Ella.
3: Hi, John. Gloomy Santa Monica today.
0: Well, the big event on TV this week, maybe this year, is The Underground Railroad, a 10-part series on Amazon Prime Video, premiering Friday, may 14th when all 10 episodes will be released it's a historical drama that's being called the most ambitious take on american slavery since roots and roots i looked this up was on tv in 1977 more than 40 years ago tell us about the underground railroad
3: well, it actually, you know, it, it does, for those of us who are old enough to have seen Roots, which in, includes you and me, um, there are kind of shades of Roots in this, but uh, since the showrunner of, of all 10 episodes is Barry Jenkins, who made the two um, acclaimed films, Moonlight and If Beale Street Could Talk, which the latter was based on a novel by James Baldwin former was based on a play, this one is also an adaptation of the prize-winning novel made in uh, that was written or published in 2016 by Colson Whitehead. I knew very little about the Underground Railroad which sounded thrilling um, so I went down a rabbit hole and found out a good deal about it The name actually was a metaphor. I'm sure a lot of people know this who are listening. Um, It was a metaphor for a a kind of web of safe houses and tunnels that were used in the latter half of the the 18th century and the first half of the 19th century before emancipation for slaves um, in slave-owning states to escape, um, notably, of course, from the Deep South. What Jenkins has done here is to literalize that metaphor. I haven't read the the novel, so I don't know if if that occurs there, but he shows it quite thrillingly as an underground tunnel with a railroad running through it, through which the slaves can actually pretty much row themselves to safety or to try to row themselves to safety with the help um, of others in the black community along the way, but also with the help of white abolitionists who were trying to do their bit. So it's a story about slavery and escape from slavery, but it's also a, a very personal story about parenting. The story centers on a a young woman named Cora Randall, an enslaved African-American, she is played with enormous passion by a young South African actress named Tuso Mbedu, um, who is really quite marvellous in what, what must have seemed like an endless role because she is in almost every frame of all 10 Uh, episodes. She is the escapee, but there's a backstory to her, which is that she's also a very angry young woman, not only because she's a slave and um, is being persecuted by a bounty hunter, who's played by Joel Edgerton also very well, bit of a thankless role there, uh, who tried to find her mother when she escaped years ago. As far as Cora is concerned, her mother abandoned her. She went out uh, one day and never came back and she's never found out the truth of what's happened to her mother. Barry Jenkins' mother was, as people who've seen Moonlight will know, because um, the mother character there is based very much on his mother who was an addict also didn't understand as a child why uh, his mother went, if not physically, then certainly uh, spiritually missing. So there's a very personal side to this, and it's a very moving story. We do find out by, ten, by chapter 10 what in fact happened with the mother, and I will say no more about that. But this is, this is the story of her escape.
0: Barry Jenkins told the New York Times that the big question he faced at the outset was, do we really need more images of black people getting brutalized? He answered that there was a story he needed to tell that was not about the physical violence of slavery, but he said something subtler about the psychic and emotional scourge, the spiritual strength required for any individual to come out alive. But then he organized a focus group of black people in Atlanta who had read the Colson Whitehead novel and asked them what they thought about this. And their advice was, quote, you have to show everything. It needs to be hard. It needs to be brutal, close quote. So my question for you is, how brutal is it?
3: It's as graphic as it needs to be. I agree with those people in the focus group. And and uh, I don't say that lightly because I have a totally low tolerance for violence in, in cinema, but it is completely in place. It's not exploitive, but uh, it is there, and some of it is very bad indeed, because uh, what ama- some of the physical violence amounted to torture and murder by extremely savage means, and every state seemed to have its own method um, for either excluding uh, or killing off people, right down to the the famous, um, perhaps not so famous, experiments with uh, sterilization of women and uh, eugenics, you know, uh, with men. And that is spelled out very graphically, too. So I do want to stress that this is not a series for very small children. For teenagers, I think parents can make their own decisions, but it is pretty graphic, uh, and I saw nothing out of place with that. But it's not only about physical violence, as as Jenkins said in in your citing him from the New York Times, there is both great cruelty and indifference and savagery, and there is also a great deal of kindness and rising to the occasion. I heard an interview with Jenkins in which he said that he was in the absence of his mother collectively parented and so is Cora it doesn't you know always save her from danger but there is the the African-American community which today is often excoriated you know for being for having single parent families and so on and so forth in this period if he is correct and I have no reason to suppose that he isn't is that other community members would step up to parent the children uh, whose parents were either not present or not able to look after them or who had been killed or disappeared. Um, And that's a very moving and powerful theme during this series. And in some cases, these are white people who have dedicated themselves to the cause. So obviously, you know, it's a very timely series given... Black Lives Matter and the you know police brutality against African-Americans today, it has an ambiguously hopeful ending is the best way I can describe it without giving away the goods. But I think it's also um, a wonderful drama in, in and of itself. It looks absolutely gorgeous. Every film that Jenkins makes does. And I personally cannot recommend it highly enough.
0: The Underground Railroad, a 10-part series on Amazon Prime Video premiering this Friday, May 14th, when all 10 episodes will drop. And now for something completely different. Can you recommend something that is not about slavery in America?
3: It's not about slavery in America. and it's not exactly about slavery, but it is about women in Saudi Arabia, and some of some would describe their condition until very recently, as pretty much uh, slavery. Um, and it's a drama. The perfect candidate, is directed by Haifa. Al-Mansur, Mansour, is a a young Saudi American woman filmmaker. She made another film called Wajda, and I think this one is much better. Um, And she is pretty much the first female filmmaker in Saudi Arabia, because until recently they weren't allowed to make films either. It centers on a young uh, woman named Maryam, um, who is a doctor it seems that Saudi Arabia is a little bit like Iran in the sense that women, there are certain professions like uh, lawyer or doctor and so on that women can do. But the complications that doing their job bring in a society where women are, are not supposed to touch men uh, or be visible to them except for um, the little eye slit in, the, um, in their headdresses Um create a lot of difficulties, a very ambitious, feisty, sassy young woman, she can drive and the director makes a big deal of her driving because it's a a very recent ban that was lifted on women driving. Uh, So she can drive to work, but the road to her clinic is in an awful state and she can't get anybody to repair it. Um, She can function as a doctor, but she cannot fly internationally without a permit from um, a significant male, a husband or a father or whatever. And she is about to go to a conference where she wants to move to a much more prestigious job in Riyadh. She's in a small country town. And they say at the airport, she gets all the way to the airport and they say that her permit is, has expired and she needs a new one and they'll get her on another flight. Of course, she's very upset and angry. She calls her father, who is a very liberal-minded man. He's got three daughters and, and no sons. Um, he's a musician and he's played by a Saudi musician who's an absolutely terrible actor, but plays the oud. Um which is the traditional uh, uh, instrument beautifully. There are some lovely musical scenes in the in the movie. And he uh, tries to get her a permit but can't. She tries her cousin who is really obnoxious about it. But he inveigles her into applying for, to become a city councillor in her town as a trade-off for a permit that she then doesn't get. Um, and uh, the story is really about her beginning to take that role very seriously um, because it will empower her and a lot of other women. And more important even than that for her, at least, is to get this decrepit road fixed to the clinic so that you know both she and her patients can get there. Um, so she decides she's going to put her all into uh, getting elected for the city council or trying that. that. And in this endeavor, she gets a lot of help from her father from a distance. Um, he's a recent widower who keeps complaining that his daughters are going to be the end of him, but it's obvious he totally adores them anyway. Um, and uh, from a very willing help from one sister who's very good with a camera, presumably a stand-in for the filmmaker, and much more reluctant help from her teenage sister, um, who doesn't want anything to do with all this boat rocking. Um, and uh, I won't tell you whether she succeeds or whether she fails. But along the way, there are some wonderful scenes uh, that just depict you know, women in Saudi Arabia and uh, the, co- the, the contradiction, contradictions of their lives. Um, that on the one hand, there have been significant reforms, including the opening of cinemas um, in Saudi Arabia, uh right now, apparently, um, paintings can still not be shown in public in the in the kingdom, which is quite astonishing. And there was just a real clampdown on art, which her father encounters from. He's a kind of sub-story there um, as he goes on tour for the first time in a long time. So that plays out. But also there's some wonderful scenes, apparently, um, in Saudi Arabia and other countries, too, when women get together. Um, In a special room at the mosque or or wherever, they put on Western clothing of a very modest kind, but very glamorous. Of course, they're all totally beautiful Um, and uh, they get very sassy and they dance and sing and... um, I can't remember if there's any drinking there, but. Um, no these- drinking,
0: no drinking allowed.
3: <laughs> these scenes are absolutely wonderful because the exuberance of these pent up lives um, is really just smashing to watch. It's wonderful. And uh, you know, so scene for scene, although the directing is a little stolid, um, and the writing a little bit overly expository, these scenes just make the movie. Um, I can tell you that the road gets built, because that's not that's not the uh, ending. And and a patient, male patient, who would have nothing to do with her at the beginning, um, makes a makes a present, gives a present to her at the end, and. and apologizes to all the women who work in the clinic who are many. So it's a very nice film to watch. Uh, I was once on a plane with – and I was – there were a lot of people from Saudi Arabia on this plane, I noticed, mostly women. And I was seated next to their nephew, who was an 18-year-old young man who was coming to America to go to community college Mm – he was just lovely to talk to. Um, he's completely unfazed at having to converse with an, an old woman sitting beside him. That was me, um, although I wasn't so old then. Uh, and uh, but when I, I I just couldn't resist asking him how he felt about you know the confinement of women in Saudi Arabia, without missing a beat, um, he said, you know, it's our duty as men to protect our women. And at this point, I, I gave some consideration to pushing it further and asking, you know, if the if the woman doesn't feel like she's in need of protection, what do you do? But I didn't. Um, and he introduced me to uh, to all his female relatives, and uh, it was really quite fun. But at the same time, completely. Um, Byzantine in some way in terms of their attitudes towards women. So this young woman is very brave. Um, the tone is very generous of the movie, that she says that there are traditions also that are worth um, maintaining, mostly artistic traditions. But um, uh, there's something, it's not, a, her stance is not aggressive. It's more, we need more of this cha- these changes to happen.
0: And where can we see the perfect candidate?
3: You can see it only in theatres. Lemley, in a number of Lemley theatres, the Royal, the Playhouse and Town Centre. It seems to be unclear whether it's going to get a streaming um Release. I, I suppose that they will see how, you know, how it goes and maybe Lemley will pick it up for its virtual cinema. But for now, it's in those three movie theaters. And I gather that things are picking up with the movie theaters. People are actually going.
0: Well, we have time for one more, but it it has to be quick. It cannot be endless
3: it is rather endless but in a wonderful way if you like this kind of movie it's it's called about endlessness and it's by the swedish director roy anderson who previously made a, a film a couple of years ago called the pigeons sat on a Branch reflecting on existence. Um, that will give you some clue that this is a highly philosophical filmmaker. It's only 76 minutes long. So um, it's not endless. No, it's actually quite brief, but I found it entirely gorgeous. It's a scene, what it is is a collection of sequences um, that will almost seem like a documentary in some ways, but every single one of them was made in a studio. So you've got, for instance, um, a man stopping to tie his daughter's shoelace, uh, a woman executive who, quote, unquote, feels no shame, uh, and uh, very movingly, a couple watering the grave um, of a son who was killed in combat. That's the micro level, and uh, its most striking image, which is also used in the poster for the movie, is a couple... um, flying rapturously over the bombed city of Cologne, Cologne oh. um, which is all that was actually a tiny model of the <laughs> burned-out city of Cologne that was made in the, st- in the studio. And all of this is mixed in with macro scenes of... Um, Uh, There's one with Hitler uh, in his bunker as he's about to go under and another of defeated soldiers marching to a prison camp. And the moods, uh, it's narrated uh, in the manner of Scheherazade by a young woman who keeps saying, I saw a man, I saw a woman. And there's no attempt to explain any of this. But the overall effect is both funny uh, and heartbreaking and... uh, Um, very uh, extremely moving and extraordinarily uh, detailed and and clever. When I found out it was all made in a studio, you wouldn't really believe it. Um, And it's really all about the the way that the banal mixes with the profound in everyday life. He's sort of tried to reproduce that. Um, He has said, um, and I'm quoting here, I am not a pessimist. But the fact is, there is no hope. Um, (laughs) And that that absolutely describes the twofold um, modulated tone of his movies. If you don't like ambiguity, you will hate this movie. But if you would like the experience of, of living and the vulnerability of living portrayed in front of you in a very beautiful way, this is highly recommended. And it's all over the place, actually. Um, You can see it on Amazon, Apple TV, Google Play, Fandango, PlayStation, Voodoo, and YouTube, um, all of which surprised me very much because uh, I think they must have got it very cheaply (laughs) because this is not a mainstream movie at all, but I do very much recommend it.
0: So we've talked about Underground Railroad. It's on Amazon Prime starting on Friday. The Perfect Candidate. Uh, which is at Lemely Theatres in Endlessness, which is everywhere. Ella Taylor, thanks for talking with us today.
3: You're very welcome, John.
0: That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Ry Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo.